Isaiah chapter 9, where we will be looking at the first seven verses this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. This is God's living and active word. Let's hear it together. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we reflect on your majesty... We compare that to who we are, weak, feeble, and ultimately sinful creatures. And so that creates, or ought to create, a sense of awe in us. As we are struck even afresh by your word this morning, Lord, I ask that you would create in us a sense of awe, a sense of fear, even of dread, for you are the true and living God. And you are the God who has saved us, for which we give thanks and praise. We are gathered here today because you are good and gracious and merciful. You have shown compassion to us. You know our frame that we are but dust. And yet, one day, Lord, you will raise us up, even from the dust. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we have the hope that your kingdom is advancing Even that your peace is advancing, we look out and we don't necessarily see it all the time, but we give you praise and thanks even for the ways that you've preserved and protected our church over the last number of months, even through a very difficult and distressing season. Lord, we ask that you would continue to strengthen our resolve to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, that even as the nations watched, that they would gaze with wonder, 
even as is happening right now in the heavenly places, as they are gazing on wonder at the wisdom that you possess even through the church. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a light, a beacon on a hill, as it were, among the nations, and that from this place, the gospel would go forth and it would continue to do so for generation after generation, even until Christ returns. We thank you for the privilege of partnering with other churches. We think in particular of Pastor Clint as he preaches out in Cochrane this morning. We pray for him and that you would fill him with your spirit that he might preach your word and that your people there would be encouraged in the word, that their anxieties would be set right and removed even as they gaze upon the miracle son that has been given to us, Emmanuel. Pray that you would protect that church and preserve them and guard their unity as well in these days. We do pray as you have instructed us to pray as well for our governing leaders, even as we see Christ as Lord over all, we pray that they would govern in accordance with true justice and righteousness. That they would fear you. And so we pray that in particular for our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, for our Premier, Danielle Smith, for Mayor Mayor Jody Gondek, for many other elected officials. Lord, may it be that they would turn from their sins, that they would be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We do pray for the many different people and different busy season, different uh, busyness that we all face in this season of life and ask, Lord, that you would, you would give us strength and, and help us to find time to reflect on the majesty and even the mystery of the incarnation, that this would be a season of celebration. But even as it's a season of celebration, it's often a season of sorrow. And so for those who are grieving the loss of those they love, grieving the loss of relationships, feeling in gloom and anguish, give them encouragement and hope and grant them even faith that would persevere. And now as we come to your word, grant to us all ears to hear and feet that would be swift to respond and go even to the nations with this good news. We ask this that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is no escaping the political dimensions of the gospel. There is no escaping it. This passage here in Isaiah demands that we think of the hope for the world, not just our hope, but the hope for the nations, in very political terms. Not in political terms that we often think in, but in truly political terms. Because our Savior, the child who has been born, is the King upon whose shoulder the government of the universe rests. Now, I assume that, like me, most of you believe that big government with centralized power, where it's centralized in one person or, or maybe one small group of people, that that is not a good thing. It will not lead to peace on earth, but rather to mass corruption and injustice. You can read, if you read history, any history buffs out here, you'll recognize that that's exactly the case. Dictatorships don't have good track records. 
especially for the poor and needy. And while we recognize that earthly government is a gift from God, and in some sense it is a gift to maintain peace, we recognize that the words that Lord Acton spoke remain true even today. That power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Remember hearing that in school, social class? Absolute, or power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And therefore, for this reason, societies that are founded on biblical principles, they seek to limit and distribute powers and the size of government in order to prevent it from becoming more oppressive, more harmful than good. It's a basic principle in Christian political theory that derives from our understanding of human sin, that we are all sinners. And so it's one, that's a principle that wise Christians, faithful Christians, will take even as they go into the voting booth. But my responsibility this morning is not to teach you how to vote. It is to help you gaze upon the king. Lord Acton's observation that Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely is correct. But Isaiah would say that there is one exception to this. There is one exception to this statement. In the case of the ultimate Davidic king, the son, Isaiah says to us that absolute power glorifies absolutely. It's in fact the exact opposite. Absolute power, it glorifies absolutely among the nations and in all the earth. The key difference, of course, is who's in charge? Who's the king? What kind of government does he operate? If it is a mere man who has absolute power, absolute control is deadly. It's destructive. But if it is the God-man, the divine king who is on the throne, then absolute power is glorious, and it's life-giving. That's very much what we see in this text. If you will, Isaiah comes here and he is prophesying of this future king, the one who we celebrate. His name is Jesus. Isaiah prophesies of this over 700 years before the fulfillment of these prophecies. 700 years after Israel was taken into exile and he says here, absolute power, the absolute power of Christ will glorify the nations absolutely. You see that there in verse 9, beginning in verse, or beginning in verse 1, rather. But there will be no gloom, no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah takes his readers to the future. He takes them to what he calls the latter time, or in the language of the New Testament, the last days, when God will in fact make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so what we see here in this text is God, or Isaiah describing first God's great glorification project among the nations in verses 2 through 5. And then it all leads to this crescendo, this climactic point in verses 6 to 7, where Isaiah unveils for us God's great son and his great government. So think of it this way. Think of Isaiah's strategy this way. Isaiah, what he does is he starts at the end. 
He starts at the end, having us survey, as it were, this vast ocean. It's like Isaiah is in this vast ocean as he surveys all of these different promises of God that are going to come to fulfillment in the latter times, summarized as making, way, making glorious the way by the sea. All of these promises for Israel and Galilee of the nations, Gentiles who are under judgment. And Isaiah starts in the ocean and then he finds a stream and he begins to paddle upstream, as it were. Paddling upstream, continuing to survey all these different promises. And eventually he comes to the headwaters, to the source, the king himself. And Isaiah has a strategy in mind for the people who were in deep darkness and distress. And so right away we can see that Isaiah's strategy, it comes across as a very pastoral, in a very pastoral manner. And it's a strategy that is meant to give hope to those in darkness and distress. His words are pastoral, designed to help us, to encourage us. And that is my desire for you this morning. I believe if Isaiah were standing here today, that would be his aim for you, is that you would go away strengthened and encouraged as you consider the good king and his good government. I want us to fixate our attention then on God's glorification project, which comes by means of the good government of the king that he sends. So let's follow Isaiah. Let's trace his line of thought even as he first starts by reminding us that now is the time when God is glorifying the nations who are in darkness. Now is the time. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. But in Isaiah's time, there was a lot of gloom and darkness. A lot of it. God was going to bring into contempt, another way to say it, God was going to humble, bring them right down to the dust. He was going to humble these northern tribes in Israel. He was going to send the Assyrians, which we read about back in chapter 8, this prophecy of this coming Assyrian invasion, which a few years after this prophecy is fulfilled. The Assyrians, this guy named Tiglath-Pileser, how would you like that for a name? He comes and he takes Israel into captivity. It's described in chapter 8 as, as like a mighty flood that is going to come and wash over and wash out and destroy and remove the nation of Israel from their land. It's going to sweep over them. It was a period of great darkness and distress. And we need to be very clear that Israel's darkness and their distress, this gloom of anguish, this angst in their heart, it was a deserved darkness. It was self-inflicted, as you, if you will. God was punishing Israel for their sins. You can go back to Isaiah chapter 1, which we won't this morning. But back in Isaiah chapter 1, God comes and he catalogs this list of sins, which can be summarized as idolatry and injustice. In other words, the people of Israel... God's covenant people were breaking the first and second table of the law. They were failing to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they were not loving their neighbors as themselves. Idolatry and injustice. And so rather than enjoying God's blessing and having his face shine upon them with favor, God's face would be 
turned away from them. You see that back in chapter 8, verse 17. Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. It's a period of darkness and distress. And in this darkness and distress, Isaiah draws our attention to the promise of a dawn of a new day, of a new time when light would dawn, summarized as that the latter time when God would make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's interesting, the way of the sea here was the way, was the pathway, the highway, if you will, that Assyria's armies marched on to take Israel out of the land. They were going to go into exile, if you will, into captivity on this way of the sea. But you see the promise of great reversal. Great reversal, as in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. God is going to radically reverse this way from being a path where the enemy would walk and trample and enslave Israel to a path where their king, their savior, would come, where he would walk and he would bring good news and he would then even accomplish all of their redemption even beyond Israel, to Galilee of the nations, Jews and Gentiles. And what Isaiah saw as future, he spoke of here as already having occurred. You notice there that Isaiah is talking in the past tense, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. He's talking about something that's going to be 700 years in the future, and yet Isaiah's confidence in the Lord is so certain. His confidence in God's promises and in his ability to keep those is so certain that he can talk about it as though it's already happened. And he wants you and I to have that same confidence in the Lord's ability to keep his promises. And so Isaiah talks about this great glorification, which is another way of saying God is going to reverse. The way that was once the way leading to slavery is now the way that leads to life and freedom. So Isaiah describes this great international glorification project as a time of great reversals. First, you see there in verse 2, he describes it as taking people, transferring them from darkness to light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then in verse 3, he describes it as a movement from gloom to gladness. You have multiplied the nation, verse 3. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. If you're a farmer, you know the the sense of joy that comes when the harvest is done. Unless maybe it's it's not such a great harvest and then there's not as much joy. But the point here is that there's joy because the harvest has been brought in or as those who are victorious in battle, or you can think about it in sports terms. You know, they've got the trophy, they've won, there's joy. From gloom to gladness. And Isaiah continues in verse 4 and describes the reason for this joy is that God would turn the slaves into free victors. Look there at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He's going to shatter the enemy. 
So that kind of outlines in this great promise of glorification that is going to come to Galilee of the nations, and it's going to spread out from there. And so having surveyed and summarized this great glorification project, Isaiah finally arrives then at the headwaters from whom all these wonderful blessings come to Israel and to you and to me. Isaiah brings us to the point that he wants us to look. He wants us to look, to gaze, to consider, to stop here for a moment. He he piles it all up. It it funnels down to this point in verse 6. He wants us to look at the matchless, marvelous king that God has given to us and for us. Look there in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you think about this. Think of all of this glorification that Isaiah has outlined. All the work that it's going to take, and then he starts with, for to us a child is born. A child? Like, like one of those critters that you've got to change their diaper, wipe their bum? A child who they have to learn to eat, they've got to learn to walk and talk? Yes, a child. Of course, it's not the first time Isaiah's talked about a child. Pastor Clint preached on Isaiah chapter 7, the child who is promised. But this child indicates that he is a man. He shares in our humanity. He is born, although he was conceived of a virgin, he's, he's born normally. He's, he's a normal child. He shares in our humanity. He is truly a man. The son of God, like Adam, was called the son of God. But now there are four additional titles that are attached to his name that tell us, that reveal that he is not merely a man. He is not merely one of us. Though he is like us, he is far greater. He is the God-man, the divine king who governs for his people. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. All of these titles reveal that this gift from heaven that comes from God to us is the divine king who comes to glorify those who are in darkness and distress and who deserve even to be there. During election seasons, you often hear politicians using some variation of the slogan, you know, we we are for the people, right? We're for the people. We fight for the people. We serve the people. And of course, we know that those promises often aren't followed through on. They might mean well, but oftentimes it's not the case that our leaders, and we could even just not even talking about political leaders, we could say in the home, dads are not always for their children, serving their children. Moms are not always for their children, serving their children. Pastors are not always for their church, serving their church. All across the board, there's unfaithfulness in the promise to serve the people, except, except for this king. This child who is to be born to us and who has been born, he is one who governs over us. The government is on his shoulders. He bears the weight and responsibility of world governance. But he is also one who very clearly rules for us. He rules for us. You could actually, in verse 6 there, 
you could actually translate that just as easily for for us. For us, a child has been born. For us, a son has been given. Emphasizing that Jesus is for his people. Let's just consider these titles. Let's stop and marvel for a few minutes here as we consider Jesus first as the wonderful counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. It's easy to get disoriented in the dark, isn't it? Julie and I, when we lived in Kentucky, when I was going to school down there, we visited what was called Mammoth Cave National Park. Perhaps some of you have been there. And during one of the tours, as we were buried several feet below the earth, the tour guide said, okay, everybody turn off your lights. So everybody turned off their lights. Total darkness. Even the darkest night in rural Alberta can't compare with that kind of darkness. It's a deep darkness. It's one that you can't literally see your hand in front of your face. Your eyes can never adjust to. There's no light. It's completely dark. You can't do anything to change it. And if you were to try and attempt to navigate your way through that cave system in the dark, I'd still be down there dead. So would you. Darkness. It's disorienting. And this deep darkness is a darkness that is unable to be come out of by human means. But this son, he is a counselor, a a wonderful counselor. And you think about the work of counseling. What does a counselor do? Well, a counselor works to strategically bring people to a greater awareness of their condition, of their situation, and then he seeks to give wise guidance to help them navigate themselves through that situation. In that regard, a counselor, he functions like a light shining in a dark place, doesn't he? He functions like a light For those who are disoriented in the darkness, exposing the dangers of the pathway that you might be on and calling you to follow this path rather than that path. Jesus is the wonder counselor and he shines as a light in the darkness, in the deep darkness. To those who can't get out on their own, to those who are blind to their own need, to their own sin, Jesus comes as the wonder counselor and he shines as a light in a world of moral confusion, of people who love their sin, who flee from the light. See, Jesus, he self-consciously fulfills this prophecy. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, as he begins his earthly ministry, right after he's been baptized, says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's that's right here, what Isaiah is talking about. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them... A light has dawned. It's interesting here that the Greek translation talks about the deep darkness as the darkness of death. It's actually the same phrase that's used in Psalm 23. Same phrase when it talks about as we go through the valley of the shadow of death. Of course, that's, that's the deepest darkness that any of us experience. 
brings gloom and anguish, even as we consider that valley. But Jesus is not just a counselor. He is specifically the wonder counselor. The word literally means a supernatural counselor, one who can do only what God does in working wonders, like God did when he brought his people out of Egypt and opened the Red Sea and brought them through. God is the wonder-working, miracle-working God. And Jesus, this speaks of his divine ability not only to speak what is wise and true, but of his ability to change hearts to receive his message. Wouldn't you love that? I've been in enough counseling situations in my short pastoral career to know you could, you could David Paulison up, you could, you could knock it out of the park and offer the best counsel, you could be crystal clear, and yet you're still unable to change people in their hearts. But Jesus, as the wonder counselor, comes to those who are in darkness. Even as you go back to verse 3, you see that you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What this describes is a heart change, a change in the affections from gloom to joy, which is a fruit of true faith. He's able to multiply the nation. He's able to add more people to himself. True converts. True converts who come. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, speaking here of Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. He has the ability to change hearts to guarantee that his people will listen. It's a wonder counselor. Now, I would guess, I won't even guess, I know that there are people who are in darkness here. Walking in darkness and dwelling in deep darkness. And many of you are probably trying to work your way, as it were, through the cave system of life in that darkness You're disoriented. You're looking for solutions to alleviate then the distress and the gloom and the anguish that is a consequence of being in the darkness. Because when you live in the dark, it creates all sorts of distress. Now, I want to be very clear that there's many factors that can contribute to our distress and gloom, and not all are directly as a consequence of our sin. There can be certain biological factors There can be factors in terms of relationships. But we must understand here in this context that Israel's distress was due to their sin. It was due to the fact that they were idolatrous and full of injustice. They were under judgment. And so we cannot discount the fact that there is a psychological, even if you will, a psychological anguish and gloom that people experience when they are stuck and lost in the darkness. It's a reality. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Given how God created you to live. The fact that he created you in his image. He created you to worship him. So then, when you're doing the opposite, when you're going contrary to divine design, it's going to lead to all sorts of anguish, all sorts of consequences, not just bodily, but even in your own soul. How do people deal with the anguish? Well, to paraphrase one commentator, those in darkness 
perpetually oscillate between activism and escapism. Activism and escapism. So I'm just trying to, I got to work my way out of this thing. I just got to be a better person. Better person. Do more good things. Feed more people. But then many other people, they just give up. And they find all these escape routes to try to ignore even the distress that God is using to seek to get your attention. And often those escape routes are very selfish. They indulge in sexual perversity, alcohol, drugs. Some even take their own lives. I I think this explains why, friends, we are seeing this increase in supposed death with dignity, euthanasia, good death, people taking their own lives. They've come to the end of themselves and they're trying to find some way to escape from the gloom and anguish and distress that they feel. But the solution is not to take your own life. It never is. Nor is it to try to work yourself out of it on your own merits. And so I would submit to you, without knowing your story, please hear me, I'm not discounting other factors, as I said, but without knowing your story and the complexity of your life and your health and your circumstances, I would urge you, I would urge you who do not know and fear God, do not rush to numb the distress and gloom of anguish you feel, whether that be with lawless earthly pleasures or legal prescriptions. God is seeking to get your attention. He is seeking to get your attention. The light is shining. It's piercing. He's pointing it on your sin and your need for him. Jesus' counsel, when he comes to Zebulun and Naphtali, fulfilling Isaiah, what's the first bit of counsel that he gives? Repent! Oh, but that doesn't sound like nice counsel. Wonderful counselors speak what is true and needed, not what ears necessarily want to hear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So come to the light. Walk in the light, friends. Don't hide in your sin. John says that people love the darkness rather than the light. See, it's a funny thing. You'd think that Israel would want to get out of the darkness, but actually deep down they don't want to. And that's the natural inclination of humanity. As soon as the light comes and starts to invade and shine the spotlight on their sin, what do they do? They shrink back. They hide. They find some way to escape, to silence it. No, no, no. Come to the light. Follow Christ, and you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It doesn't mean that all your problems will immediately go away, but you will have life. Jesus is a wonderful counselor, but he is also mighty God. Again, as with the title of wonderful counselor, the stress is on his divine nature. Jesus is the warrior king who fights for his people, who defeats their enemies, even as God has done for his people in the past. You look back there at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. I had to brush up on my Uh, book of Judges a little bit. The day of Midian was a day when God raised up a man named Gideon 
And a small little army of 300 soldiers who were armed with nothing but clay pots and torches and some shouts for the Lord and for Gideon. And he brought about a stunning defeat of the Midianites. And again, Israel was being attacked by the Midianites because they were doing what was evil in the sight of God, just as Israel was here once again. And so it's a pattern that gets repeated. Just as a side note, that's how we are to read the Bible. You see these patterns in history. God delivers in the Exodus, brings his people out. God delivers through a deliverer like Gideon, brings his people out. That's what Isaiah is saying here. God is going to do that again. It's interesting, the angel of the Lord, when he comes to Gideon, addresses Gideon with the title, You Mighty Man of Valor. Yet that doesn't hold a candle to mighty God, does it? It doesn't hold a candle to who Jesus is as the mighty God himself who comes and he shatters, he breaks the bonds, he shatters the rods, and he sets his people free from even greater enemies than the Midianites. See, because the darkness and the sin and the slavery is not just external. That was Israel's problem. They're always focusing on externals, but God was bringing them to the point of realizing their sin within, their need for deliverance from themselves, their own hearts captive to their sin. And Jesus is the Son who is given and who comes, and as the mighty God, he sets his people free. He disarms the devil by removing the basis for Satan's accusations against his people, by paying the debt of sin on the cross. And he breaks us free from our slavery to sin so that we can walk in new obedience. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that this king for you has accomplished all that you need to enable you to walk no longer in the fear of death, the enemy of death, or in slavery to your sin. You have been set free. That is objectively who you are and what he has done. The yoke of slavery to sin has been broken and on your shoulders now he has put a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. He removes our burdens and gives us ultimate victory over all our enemies for every boot of the tramping warrior, verse 5, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Did you catch that? What the enemy uses for evil and to advance their wicked purposes, God will actually turn then for the good and usefulness of their people. Weapons turned into wood for the fire that would give light and warmth. God will cause wars to cease, violence to end. He will remove all of our enemies, and he is doing so, beginning with sin and death. And he will finally put every enemy under his feet and establish peace on earth. So that it is true that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And love us he does because the next title tells us that he is everlasting father. Now this is not confusing Trinitarian relations between the father and the son. Rather the title everlasting father stresses that Jesus as the Davidic king is father-like in his love for his people. He conveys the Father's love, God's love and compassion to his people. Jesus is not indifferent to you. He is not indifferent to your concerns. He is not indifferent to your weaknesses. He's aware of it all, and as a good, caring king, 
He addresses all of your needs. He's aware of differing levels of maturity even here. And yet, he cares for them as everlasting father. In John 15, verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And this king's love stretches from eternity past when he chose you for himself, and it continues. It's everlasting throughout all eternity. And it's not like a light switch that you might have in your basement that flickers on and off. It's not here one day, gone the next, more or less. No, no, no. His love is fully towards you and always for you. You are secure in the love of Christ now and forever. That's the kind of government that he runs. That's the kind of rule that he operates. But there's one final title. He is the Prince of Peace. Now, miscongeniality and John Lennon, what do they all want? They want you know, world peace, right? World peace. But thousands of years of world history prove that this is not achievable by human means. Technology has actually only intensified warfare, hasn't it? Nuclear war, drone strikes, weapons that can annihilate people and nations in an instant. Even the internet itself, I would suggest, is a platform for warfare and the promotion of injustice where people can bash one another, they can bully one another, and promote all sorts of gross immorality. One can go to the internet and they can satisfy their personal lusts with a click of a button. Meanwhile, someone's daughter and God's image bearer is being destroyed and defaced on the other side of the screen. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he brings restoration in every dimension. That's what God's peace is. It's a full-orbed, multi-dimensional restoration. Restoring people in right relationship to God, the vertical dimension, and right relationship to one another. And even restoration in the natural order. And the Prince of Peace even brings a peace that permeates our hearts so that we would have a peace that is beyond all understanding. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who is setting the world right, making people right with God and even right with one another. And one day his peace will fill the whole world because Isaiah directs our attention finally to the fact that Jesus' kingdom is expanding, but it is always constitutionally stable. Jesus' kingdom is expanding, it's increasing, but it's constitutionally stable. Look there, beginning in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, King David reigned 40 years, which back in that time, even our time, that's a long time. Usually in those times, you know, probably one of your wives or children would have put some strychnine in your coffee before 40 years had come up. So it's a long time. But he's dead. We just witnessed the end of a reign in England, our own commonwealth, Queen Elizabeth, reigning over 70 years. And yet, we just witnessed as well watching her body being taken away in a hearse and lowered into the ground. But not our king. Not the son that is given to us. Jesus was buried once, but never again. The grave couldn't hold him. We will never see the king's body carried in a hearse. We will never see his kingdom shrinking. No, no, no. There's one word that describes 
his kingdom and his peace, and that is increase. It is increasing. Sometimes that increase is hard to see, isn't it? It looks like the kingdom of darkness is winning. Do you feel that? That's probably in part what's causing lots of your distress, isn't it? You look out there and you see perversion. It looks like the enemy is winning. That the kingdom of darkness is actually the one that's increasing. But Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small. It's seemingly insignificant. But then it bursts forth and bears tons of fruit. And so, even though we live in dark times, we must recognize these are also marvelous times. That's something that I actually have to remind myself, consciously remind myself of. And I bet you would as well. We ought to have a proper kind of optimism about the future. And even, I would say, about the present. Because in the present, this promise is still being fulfilled. Christ is still on the throne. His kingdom is increasing. We live in the latter times when God is making glorious the way of the sea. And he's doing that even in you and in me as he begins to change you and make you more like Christ. As he brings in more people to his kingdom, causing them to see the light. The increase of his kingdom and his peace are even seen in little outposts of God's kingdom called churches. Local churches. What you are involved in right now is actually just, it's a small little beacon of light that is indicating that the kingdom of Christ is increasing. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to see several baptisms. Those are not just public professions of faith. They are also public testimonies to the fulfillment of the increase of Christ's government and in peace. And one day when Christ returns, the entire earth will be the commonwealth of Christ. It will be the commonwealth of Christ. All darkness will be dispelled. All distress in your soul and in mine will be removed. Peace will fill the whole earth. We will live rightly before God and with one another. It's a kingdom that's guaranteed to grow, and it's also stable, though, in its constitution. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus did not take the shortcut to the throne. He did not take the pragmatic, easy route. No, no, no. The Son is sent from the throne in heaven. He comes to the trough in Bethlehem into the tree outside of Jerusalem, and then back to the throne of David. That's the path. It's a path of humiliation and then glorification, of suffering all the way to the point of death. And his life was one that was marked by justice and righteousness, and it had to be. It had to be. How could God's kingdom be anything else? Just and right. And how else could there be then peace between God and man unless sins are atoned for. God is not going to compromise his character. And so, sins must be justly dealt with. And the righteous requirement of God for mankind, for you and for me, must be fulfilled. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. Remember the child who was born in Bethlehem is also identified by Isaiah as the servant. He was 
pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's how peace comes. Is not by ignoring justice and righteousness, but by establishing it in his own life. Justice and righteousness are the constitution of Christ's kingdom. We talk a lot about the Canadian Constitution, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And though it's right for earthly kingdoms to operate by principles of justice and righteousness that derive from God, we see here that it actually must begin with us. It must begin with us following this constitution because his throne continues to be upheld by it. It's an unchanging constitution. It's not going to be challenged. There's no out clause for this constitution. Justice and righteousness are how the kingdom is established and how it continues. And therefore, what that means for you and for me is that the way into this kingdom is the same as it was for David, as it was for Paul, as it has been for every person who will enter into that kingdom. There's one way. The justice and righteousness that Christ accomplished by his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. And because it continues, it means that we as his people, citizens of this kingdom, must be marked by true justice and righteousness. It, we, we must be marked by true justice and righteousness. We must not show partiality in our judgments. But rather, we are to make judgments based on what God's word says. Isaiah tells the people of Israel who were going back to the mediums and necromancers, the spiritual gurus of their day, he says, no, 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 you shouldn't be going to those goofballs. Don't listen to them. To the law and to the testimony, right? To the law and to the testimony. That's how you make your judgments, and that's the constitution that you live under. So church, as a mission, we are people who care about justice because the king cares about justice. So don't be so afraid of all the social justice nonsense out there that we actually turn off the justice language in the Bible. It's actually a commandment for us. We are to be people who live under the rule of this king, which means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Caring for our neighbors, even beginning here in the church. We follow the constitution of Christ's kingdom, not traditions, not our preferences, but justice and righteousness. Now, lest we think that this is all about us or somehow God's kingdom all depends on us because it's easy for us to slip back into that, Isaiah takes us back to the ultimate reason for our confidence. You see that there, the final phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's own zeal, his own jealousy for his glory and reputation among the nations was the guarantee for Isaiah and Israel, that light would break into the darkness, that the sun would come, that the kingdom would be upon his shoulders, and that all of these promises, God's great glorification project in all the earth, would be accomplished. And though we have the privilege of looking back and living in the time of fulfillment, we recognize that we're still in this in-between time, aren't we? All of these promises have not come to fulfillment. We still feel distress and gloom and anguish because of even the own indwelling sin of our hearts. We still have enemies. And yet, as Isaiah and as Israel and Isaiah's day, we also look forward to the coming of the king. 
This time, though, he won't come as a child. He will come as a king who has already earned the right to the throne, and he will bring peace on the earth. His glory will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. So friends, our confidence rests in the zeal of the Lord of hosts who is so committed to his glory and to the fulfillment of his promises that we can rest in that even in the midst of our distress and darkness. It is what then gladdens us. You need gladness. You need confidence that God will complete what he has promised. You need to think long and hard about who God is. He is a God who is jealous for his glory And the amazing thing is that his glory and your glory actually coincide because he is glorified in the glorification of people who are in anguish and gloom and darkness because of their sin. I was reading this morning a poem by Horatius Bonar called The Mountain of Myrrh. O hope all-surpassing, forevermore to be, O Christ, the church's bridegroom, in paradise with thee, for soon shall break the day and shadows flee away. Friends, we live in a time when Christ has shined and is shining. His kingdom is increasing. Our king has come to us and he rules for us. He is a good king. He is a gracious king. And he is going to come back to us as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, and our prince of peace. That's our great hope, even in the midst of all the distress that you're feeling and experiencing right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in your son. And even as we look to the coming day when all the shadows will flee away, when all sin will be removed, all enemies will be dealt with, We ask, Lord, that you would keep us faithful, that we would be as people who would live under the constitution of your kingdom. And Lord, we do pray. We pray, come, and come quickly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. In John chapter 3, verse 16, arguably one of the most famous verses, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, today is the day of salvation. Christ has come, and there is life in him and in him alone. Come to him. If you haven't met him, if you don't have that life, find somebody today, talk to them. I'll be up front. I'll be more than happy to talk to you. There is life, eternal life, through Jesus Christ. Go in peace. You're dismissed.